Firebender's Guide to Living Life After Destiny. Written by Chuffy Stilton. Read by Meisinger. Chapter 2 On the last full day of the negotiations, the thought of a day's rest was all that was sustaining Zuko as the meeting dragged on in the late hours of the afternoon. According to the official schedule, there would be a banquet once the documents had been signed and sealed. Then, the delegates would get one day's reprieve before the official ball the next night, and then the diplomatic visit would finally, finally, be over. Zuko was counting down the seconds. The afternoon meeting was for war reparations. The Earth delegation was there, as well as nearly all the Fire Nation's lords and ministers. The body of the reparation fund came from Zuko's new taxes, which made it into an issue where everyone seemed to think they deserved a say. Zuko hated reparations negotiations. Not because of what they accomplished— but because they always exposed the worst of human behavior. Grown men and women became selfish children when they had to give up a part of their wealth. Scholars and generals alike had quarreled with Zuko and his advisors, arguing that the Fire Nation had actually brought order and prosperity to its colonies. By their logic, the Fire Nation had removed bandits, struck new coal mines, and brought a system of modern law and peacekeeping into areas that had been long stricken by warring tribes. The implication was that, if anything, other nations should be thanking them for spreading Fire Nation civilization to the rest of the world. Zuko usually finished those meetings with a formal thank you to the minister for bringing such matters to his attention. And then going out to the sparring grounds to set as many things on fire as possible. Today, the Reparations Council was going through a list of coastal towns that had been marked out for additional steel and money shipments, cross-checking the names and amounts against both sides' own lists before readying the orders for the official signatures. One of the Earth Ministers was reading out loud, Four mid-sized capsizer vessels to travel to the northwest region, he intoned in a dry voice, carrying one hundred tons each refined steel and two teams of royal steam engineers for the reconstruction efforts to return after the harvest period with dry bulk grains and coal purchased by the fire merchant's trade at the favorable price of twenty copper pieces per. It was important information, but... Undeniably tedious, and Zuko could feel the beginning of a migraine building behind his left eye. He rubbed his temple, hoping that no one was paying attention to his small act of weakness. The man was still speaking. In addition to the towns we have originally agreed on, after much consideration, the Earth Kingdom delegation are also putting forward the townships of the Kolau Mountains as another candidate for reparation payments. Zuko stopped rubbing his temple and straightened up. They were asking for last-minute changes. He hated last-minute changes. Everyone hated last-minute changes. 
May you elaborate on the reason for putting forward the Kolau Mountains? asked Zuko. I don't recall seeing it before. An Earth Kingdom minister stood up. Her name was Luan, Zuko remembered. Her voice was as high-pitched as a little girl's. Fire Lord Zuko, we ask for payments for the Kolau Mountains because 80 years ago, before the Avatar's return, a group of Fire Nation soldiers had marched in and raised entire villages to seize control of its iron ore deposits. The survivors fled and joined villages in the surrounding area, and only now in peacetime have they organized themselves to make demands. I only received their letter yesterday. They say since the ore has been mined to depletion, they ask for repayments in gold and silver pieces to compensate for losing their homes. Excuse me, said a new voice. It was Q. You say that the survivors fled eighty years ago. Those were the crimes of our grandfathers, who are dead now. It's one thing to compensate people who have lost parents or children in the war, but why should we pay people we've never seen for the lives of a few poor, squabbling mountain peasants 80 years ago? Their bones and ashes have long been scattered to the four winds. In Ozai's time, Q had been just another provincial noble, loathsome and imperious to people below him, but still towing the line in fear of the Fire Lord's retribution. But since Zuko has taken the throne, Q has grown bolder, more openly critical of Zuko's reforms. People called Q a staunch remnant of the good old days. Zuko called him, in the privacy of his own mind, a pain in the neck. Lord Q, said Zuko quietly, do not speak ill of the dead. Q was too well-bred to spit on the ground, but Zuko thought he would have if he could. His thick, heavy-set features were locked in an even more intense form of his usual glower. I question if your displays of meaningless charity to the other nations is to our best interests, Fire Lord Zuko said Q. His gold eyes were two burning pits when he looked into Zuko's. I wonder if you are forgetting that your duty lies first and foremost to your own people. There was a silence. Some of Zuko's ministers, who had been nodding approvingly at the speech until the last line, froze and sat still. Others had their mouths open at the extraordinary display of insolence. On the other side of the council table, the earth ministers sat, stony-faced. They were all waiting for Zuko to say something. Zuko felt the familiar spark of anger threatening to ignite him like an oil-soaked rag. He tried to focus on his breath moving in and out his nose, the way Iroh had taught him. He couldn't rebuke Q publicly. It might signal that the Fire Lord had no control over his own government, he couldn't say something vague or appeasing, or the earth ministers might walk away from such a show of disrespect. What could he do? When he had himself under control, Zuko stood up from his kneeling position. Thank you for your input, Lord Q, he said. He did not raise his voice. 
Only a child or a tyrant tries to make others listen, his uncle had told him once. A wise man knows they will. I remember visiting the Kew's manor house as a child, before my father was named the crown prince. You have a beautiful home, built by your grandfather, as I recall, using marble mined near Taku. It was mined by earthbenders, kidnapped from their home villages and put into work camps, ran by Fire Nation military. Zuko turned to address the room. So much of our wealth came from other nations. Even the gold in this very throne room was originally from the Earth Kingdom. When we give the wealth back, these are not acts of charity. As the Fire Lord, I'm putting my people first by considering our honor. While it seems a great sacrifice, I would ask you all to consider our reparations as the honoring of a debt. Zuko kneeled back down. He was breathing hard. His head throbbed. The room burst out in frantic whispering. Good or bad, he wasn't sure. He had made the same arguments a thousand times before to most of them already, though never to this impassioned degree. Luan looked unmoved. She was a thin woman with pale, watery eyes that darted about the room. She wore a thick robe sewn over with jade beads and seed pearls despite the heat, and when she moved her head, the loops of her heavy gold earrings clacked against each other. Fire Lord, thank you for your speech. Are you stating that the payments are your duty? Would you take responsibility for your people? Yes, said Zuko after a pause. Then, on behalf of the Earth Kingdom, I demand both the payment for Kolau and a double amount of steel shipments to the rest of the villages to compensate for the insult to the dead made by Lord Q. Her watery eyes met Zuko's. We shall count it against your honor as the leader of the Fire Nation. When she sat down, a brief smattering of applause broke out among the rest of her delegation. Hear, hear muttered a few out loud. The rest were still tense and brooding. The admiral in front of Zuko at the theater had his arms crossed, the vein of his arms popping out like little snakes readying to strike. I... started Zuko and stopped. It was his own fault. He had just publicly declared that paying back his nation's debt was his duty. To backtrack on his words now when the mood in the room had turned so ugly, would diminish his standing in the eyes of the Earth Kingdom and, more crucially, but to his own people as well. The Fire Nation could abide a ruler who raised taxes, but they could never abide one who showed weakness or dishonor by going back on his word. He addressed one of his advisors instead. Is it possible he asked in a low voice. The man flicked the beads on his abacus and consulted the records piled up next to him. Yes, my lord, he said after a few moments' calculation, though I would not advise it. The funds are stretched thin enough as it is. That's all I needed to know, said Zuko. 
He raised his voice. I hear your request, Minister Luan, and I understand your anger. As the Fire Lord, I will honor my words to send money to Kolau's former villagers. He waited for the protests and outcries in the room to die down. But I ask you and your party to wait until tomorrow before we finalize this agreement. My scribes will need time to draw up a new treaty, and I think we all need time to let our cooler heads prevail. I will see you at the banquet tonight. Zuko sat down again, trying not to let his sudden burst of anxiety overwhelm him. What the fuck was all that about? The throne room was empty except for Zuko. He dismissed the guards and servants so they could get some rest before any extra banquet duties, and now he was alone, pacing back and forth along the red pillars, trying to ignore his headache while racking his brain for what it was that was troubling him so. Q had sat in a thousand meetings before, but he had never challenged Zuko so openly as he did today. The imperial court usually obeyed a strict sense of decorum. Complaints were aired in private audiences, or in public only implied slyly in the slippery language of courtiers. Q's outburst today should have been enough for Zuko to challenge him to an Agni Kai. Zuko took a series of deep breaths, an old meditation exercise, and let the flames in the bolted sconces wax and wane in time to his breathing. Maybe that was it. He has not challenged anyone since the match with Azula, and the day was bringing back old memories. Zuko knew what a five-year dry stretch signified to others in his court, though, that the new Fire Lord was soft that he was afraid of losing his other eye in case of a defeat. But they were right. He had lost his stomach for that kind of violence. He massaged his temples again. The pins of his royal headpiece were digging into his scalp. With care, he plucked it off and raked his fingers through his scalp. The absence of the heavy weight was a relief. How was that for an obvious metaphor? Uncle Iroh would be proud. Careful, I just learned today that it was taboo to do that around here, said someone in front of the curtained doorway. Ah! Sokka laughed and walked up the throne room. Did I startle you? Your little jump was adorable. You didn't startle me, said Zuko, startled. And that was a high-level defensive maneuver to protect myself against assassination attempts. I'm sure it's very effective. You're speaking to a man who survived six of them so far. Zuko should put his headpiece back on in the presence of an ambassador, but he slipped it into a pocket instead. Sokka had seen him in far worse. How did you know I was here? You mean, how did I guess that the Fire Lord was in the Fire Lord's throne room? Just a hunch. Sokka looked around the throne room with interest. I always wondered what the world was like from up here. Must be nice looking out at your adoring subjects. Zuko tried to imagine Lord Q's reaction if someone called him an adoring subject to his face. 
He doubted that any of his lords and ministers adored him so much as grudgingly tolerated Zuko as the only alternative to a civil war. He climbed up as well and sat down, letting his feet dangle off the side of the dais. Being the Fire Lord is pretty dull, Zuko told him. Unless you enjoy hearing people bicker about taxes. I consider thwarting the occasional assassination basically a form of stress relief. Sokka laughed again and sat down next to Zuko on the edge of the platform. He gave him a companionable knock with his knees. What are you still doing here? Zuko didn't answer right away. He was staring at the spot where once a 13-year-old boy had defended the lives of a few hundred new recruits. It had made no difference in the end. The platoon was slaughtered at the front the week following that Agni Kai anyways. Sozin had built the throne room near the end of his rule, and Zuko's little drop of defiance was nothing in the ocean of a century's worth of war and death. It wasn't just Zuko's memories haunting the room, but the ghosts of all that came before him. I hate this room, said Zuko. He breathed out again and sensed the flames quiver in their torches, but the tiny pools of light could not drive back the cavernous darkness. He thought Sokka was going to say something about the non-sequitur, but he was just quiet, waiting for Zuko to put his thoughts in order. I'm worried, Zuko admitted finally. Something happened during the Earth Kingdom meetings this afternoon. He summarized the past weeks of reparation agreements, and then recounted Q and Luan's speeches and his own promise. Sokka listened with his hands steepled on his knees. "'Where did you say the shipments were headed?' he asked when Zuko was finished. "'The Kola Mountains.' "'And Luan said it was eighty years ago that a massacre happened?' "'Yes.' Can you or her prove it did happen? Zuko thought for a moment. No, he said. There were a couple of iron mines there that were shut down in Azulon's era. But in terms of war crimes, our records are patchy. Ozai destroyed a lot of it when he crowned himself the Phoenix King, and, even if he didn't, there's often a gap between what gets reported to Caldera and what actually happened. Commanders have their own interpretation of official orders when they're out in the field, so even if we had no record, it doesn't prove it didn't happen. Besides, he added bitterly, even if it didn't happen there, something like it would have happened somewhere else. Sokka rubbed his chin. But it wasn't originally part of the reparation plans. No. And it's being snuck in on you in some sort of suspicious sneak attack, giving you no time to ask any questions. I suppose. Hmm. Sokka gave a dramatic sniff. Do you smell that? What? The fishy smell? Am I the only one who smells something fishy? The city's next to the ocean, said Zuko. Sokka jumped to his feet and started pacing. Point one, he said, and put up his index finger. 
Someone insisted on paying villagers of a place that you've never heard of before. I know where Kolau is, said Zuko, but Sokka went on. Point two, he said, holding up another finger. They could have done it any time this past week, but waited for the final day of the talks when everyone's under pressure to wrap it up and go home. Sokka put up another finger. Point three. All of a sudden, not only are you paying money to a township you've never heard of before, but you're paying double any normal amount. I think you're right to be suspicious. One more finger. And point four. You need to get out of here. Zuko blinked. What? You look worse than Aang did the day before the Day of Black Sun. How are you supposed to untangle a conspiracy if you can barely walk straight? I can walk straight, said Zuko. And I was busy thinking here. Sokka clapped him on the shoulder. Buddy, you weren't thinking. You were brooding. He bent down to peer at Zuko's face, so close that Zuko could see the dark rings around the blue of his irises. The bags under your eyes have bags, said Sokka. Well, that eye has bags, at least. The other one would, if it could. It had been a long time since someone had insulted him so casually. Zuko found he missed it. He huffed out an amused breath and took Sokka's proffered arm, hauling himself up and letting himself be led out at the doorway. "'I'll see you at the banquet,' said Sokka, when they stopped at the turning. "'If you can't see me, I'll be the devastatingly handsome one in the blue shirt.' "'I'll know where you are,' said Zuko. And because he was really very exhausted, he added, "'Don't stand me up this time.' If that comment made any impression on Sokka, he didn't show it. "'You better fix that before you go,' he said, after a beat, pointing at Zuko's head. As Zuko scrambled to plaster his hair back into some semblance of order, Sokka turned down the corridor to where the gate was closest to the foreign dignitary quarters. "'Get some rest before the banquet,' Sokka called over his shoulder. "'I hate banquets.' mumbled Zuko at Sokka's disappearing silhouette, and yawned. Sokka was right, though. Everything will look better after a nap. Zuko will just close his eye for an hour or two, and when he's less tired, the world will make sense again, and he'll figure it all out somehow. Conspiracy or no conspiracy. Zuko overslept. He had given orders not to be disturbed until the hour before the banquet, or at least, he thought he had given orders. It was possible that he had mumbled a vague dismissal at the royal attendants and then fell on top of his bed, and then merely dreamed that he had given clear instructions to be woken up at the correct time, and then fell into another strange dream where he was flying on Appa, and Appa could talk and he was testing Zuko on his knowledge of Zeppelin mechanics, except Zuko couldn't hear a word he was saying because the rain was falling down and there was thunder booming all around them, and the thunder sounded like... Zuko opened his eyes to the sound of synchronized pounding on the door. He got up, 
tripped over the boots he had kicked off on the floor, and then stumbled forwards, flinging open the door to the sight of Lee and Lo standing outside, dressed in identical robes of gold and black, and with identical smirks on their faces. "'Greetings, Fire Lord Zuko,' said either Lee or Lo. Zuko genuinely had no idea which one was Lee and which one was Lo, and he had passed the point where he could have just asked them ten years and three coronations ago. It was a secret he'd just have to take to the grave. It took him a few bleary seconds before his brain began working again. "'The banquet,' he said dumbly. Lee and Lo nodded. "'The meal will begin in a quarter of an hour,' said the sister who hadn't spoken yet. Zuko dove behind his dressing screen and grabbed the first layer of his embroidered formal robes. At least there were fewer of them than normal. In the month past midsummer, the royal court's fastidious rules about seasonal dress finally relaxed enough for only two layers of raw silk. "'Why didn't anyone send for me earlier?' he wailed, trying to tug his head through the neckhole. "'Were we supposed to?' Lian Lo asked at the same time, to creepy effect. His outer robe in place, Zuko shoved his arms through the holes of the ceremonial shoulder plates, only took him three tries to fasten them on his own, and fumbled for his royal headpiece. "'Out of my way!' he roared and shoved his way past Li and Lo, who were still crowding the doorway. He made it to the end of the antechamber before an attack of conscience overtook him, making him sprint back. "'Sorry.' he said, embarrassed. He thought he had outgrown his teenage fits of temper. That was rude of me. The twins clicked their tongues. What are you still dilly-dallying for? said Lee. Or it could be Lo. You're almost late, Lo added. Or was it Lee? Bye, Agni. Zuko really was a terrible person. He gave a short bow of apology in their direction, spun on his heels, and ran. Thank you so much for listening. I'd like to thank again Chuffy Stilton for letting me record this, and for my girlfriend for putting up with mandatory quiet time. Feel free to leave a comment or kudos if you enjoyed this, or come yell at me on Tumblr. Hope you have a good night, and thanks again for listening. Stay safe.